Morning, church. Well, this morning, as every Sunday morning, we have the privilege of opening up God's Word, a living, breathing Word. And you know what? As we journey through the Gospel of Luke together, uh, what good news it is to know that the Holy Spirit of God, even while we're stuck at home, is present, is powerful, is able to address us this morning. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to open them up to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. We have just five verses we're reading together this morning, and I want to read them and invite the Holy Spirit of the living God to come and address us this morning as we look at this scripture together. Why don't you read with me Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you pray with me? Lord God, though for many of us this morning are separated by distance, we praise you that this morning as we study your word, you are present, you are powerful, You are reigning. You are dwelling in our hearts by the power of the living Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you're present and powerful. Thank you, Lord, that you wish to address us this morning from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would remove all distraction and that you would help us to examine Jesus, to stare at Jesus freshly this morning and to be changed by him. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. On Sunday the 13th of June this year, in Copenhagen's Parken Stadium, 14,000 fans descended into complete silence as star Danish midfielder Christian Eriksen collapsed falling face forward and lying motionless on the pitch. For 10 minutes, a medical team performed cardiac compressions to try and revive Ericsson while teammates formed a ring around him on the field to shield his body from the view of the cameras and fans in the stadium. Many of his teammates visibly distressed and crying. 
Erickson had gone into a complete cardiac arrest. And the actions of the medical team and his teammates saved his life. Eventually, a a defibrillator was brought onto the pitch and his heart was restarted. Piero Volpi, the team physician at Inter Milan where Ericsson plays, reported that the 29-year-old Ericsson was in perfect health in the lead-up to the cardiac arrest. He had not contracted COVID-19, he had no medical conditions that he was aware of, and he had passed every medical exam without problem since joining Inter Milan in January 2020 from Tottenham. You see, Christian Ericsson had a hidden illness. To onlookers, he was the perfect example of good health. He was a star footballer. He was young. He was incredibly fit. He was at the peak of his career, and he had passed every medical and training test. And yet the truth is, he had a hidden illness. He was, in fact, a ticking time bomb. He had a heart defect, which meant his life was actually hanging by a thread. You see, the truth is that Christian Erickson is not alone. We live in a city, a nation, a suburb filled with people with a deadly but hidden condition. You see, the vast majority of people are completely unaware that this condition exists, let alone that they suffer from it. And I'm not talking about a conduction defect putting you at risk of sudden cardiac death. I'm talking about something far more deadly. A sickness of the soul. The Apostle Paul describes our condition starkly when he says the following in Romans chapter 3 verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As we saw last week pictured so beautifully in the man with leprosy, there is a deadly disease of soul that afflicts every single one of us. The truth is that apart from the grace of God, our natural condition is to suffer from this devastating spiritual sickness. We are inwardly defied. Paul says, their throat, our throats are an open grave. We are like vipers, wicked to the core, venom under our lips. No one naturally seeks God. All have turned aside. No one naturally has any reverence for God. All of us are spiritually dead. And yet there's good news this morning for us, church. Though we might naturally all suffer from a terrible condition of the soul, today we pause again to examine the king who has come to heal. 
You know, if you're taking notes this morning, the title for this message I've entitled, Our Great Physician. And I've got three simple points that come straight from the text for us this morning, but one hope for us that I believe is the burden of our passage today. And that is that we would join our great physician on his mission to heal the spiritually sick. I believe Luke wants to show us this great physician that we might join him on his mission to heal this morning. And so let's dive into point number one from our text, a sinner called. You know, if you're new joining this live stream for the first time or you're new to following Jesus, we're going through this series in one of the biographies of Jesus' life written by a companion of the Apostle Paul, a physician by the name of Luke. And Jesus has, in this biography, started his ministry already. He was sanctioned, officially approved by God his Father at his baptism. And then he's been going about revealing different aspects of himself and his authority. He heals the sick. He uh, shows he has complete power over the evil spiritual forces. He teaches with an authority that has been unseen previously because he teaches in his own authority. Last week we saw him cleanse people from defilement and we saw him demonstrate his authority to forgive even sins themselves. And this week he puts this power of forgiveness into action by continuing to call his disciples. Why don't you read with me again the first verse of our passage. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, after healing the paralyzed man and displaying his authority to forgive, Mark, in his biography of Jesus' life, adds that Jesus was walking by the sea, likely the Sea of Galilee. And he saw, it says, the word here that Luke uses is not the normal word for seeing. This word actually means to stare intently at or to stare purposely at. It's likely that there were many people at the tax or toll booth that Levi was sitting. And Jesus is walking past when one man out of the many catches his eye. And the Lord Jesus gazes, stares purposely at him. And this man isn't any ordinary person. He is a tax or a toll collector. And to make sense of the significance of what Jesus is about to do here, we need to understand a little bit more about what these tax collectors were all about. You see, in the Roman Empire in the first century, rulers like Pontius Pilate would hire publicans, or as their names were actually called, tax farmers. These were usually wealthy foreigners who would pay a region's taxes in advance and be contracted to collect the taxes back for themselves plus a little bit extra uh, on behalf of Rome. They would then employ underlings, tax collectors, locals who would buy subcontracts to collect taxes on behalf of a district's publican. 
these tax collectors also had opportunities to employ even more subordinates underneath them, after which they would become chief tax collectors, like Zacchaeus, who we'll meet later on in the biography of Jesus' life. Now, Levi, who is named in the other Gospels as Matthew, appears to be a junior tax collector who would have reported to someone like a Zacchaeus. These tax or toll collectors would station themselves at major cities and ports like Jerusalem or Caesarea or Jericho. And multiple different taxes would be collected by them. There was a general citizen's tax known as a poll tax, a land tax or a tax on harvested goods, an indirect tax, a tax on purchases or leased items. And you can begin to see how this system of buying contracts and charging multiple taxes would be easy to exploit for massive profit. If you were a traveling businessman, for instance, traveling from city to city, you could be charged multiple times at different cities. Or if you're a tax collector, you could inflate the taxes due to a person several times over. And for this reason, tax collectors were considered to be thieves, robbing their own people. You know, to be a Jewish tax collector was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. In the eyes of rabbis and in the eyes of people, you were a thief. More, even more than a thief, you are a national traitor. You are working for a colonial superpower that is oppressing your very own people. More still, you're unclean because you're regularly having contact with Gentiles in the Roman government. You know, I think it's really difficult for us to appreciate the degree of hatred the average person would hold for a tax collector. You know, you think of corrupt politicians in our state like Eddie Obede or Darren Maguire, corrupt politicians who line their own pockets rather than serving their own people. And you combine that with being found out to be a foreign agent, actively promoting the interests of a hostile nation as well. And this hated, excluded, nobody tax underling named Levi is sitting at a toll booth, minding his own business. There is no reason to suspect that Levi at this point is thinking about anything other than how to get more for himself. And Jesus, who is walking past, stares deeply at him and says two words that completely change his life. Follow me. And Levi responds immediately. He leaves everything behind and he follows Jesus. Well, here's the question I've been thinking about this week. Why would Jesus choose this man? I mean, why would he pick this man? I mean, wouldn't he pick a shining example of faithfulness? Wouldn't he be expected to pick a Bible scholar or a business leader or a successful entrepreneur or a gifted speaker? You see, Jesus is in the process of pulling together his team of 12 men that he will train in order to take forward his mission to the world, to proclaim the gospel, to build his church. Why would he pick this slimy character who's made a career out of ripping people off? And the answer is we're never told. It's a mystery 
of the grace of God. Jesus looks at him, more he stares at him, and he wants him to be his disciple. You know, don't miss the power of the word of Christ upon this man Levi. There is no reason to suspect Levi at this moment was seeking God. There is no reason to suspect that this man Levi was disillusioned or dissatisfied with his work. There is nothing to suggest that he had any prior meeting with or knowledge of Jesus whatsoever. There is no evidence that Levi made any attempts to approach Jesus at all. Levi is simply going through the motions of another day at the office when God incarnate approaches him and speaks two words that completely transform his life. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus listening this morning, in so many ways, Levi is a picture of your story. You know, we were all born naturally with the same heart condition as our forefather, Adam, with complete rejection of God. We and every generation after him follow in his footsteps. We're disinterested. We're opposed. Our hearts are not filled with the desire to know and love God and therefore to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our hearts have been turned inwards. They've become self-obsessed. Our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength is consumed with the desire to make much of ourselves. We have a hidden spiritual disease that makes our hearts as resistant to God as rock is to fire on a cold and wet winter's day. We were sitting in our very own toll booths of selfishness, thinking thoughts only of ourselves, when Jesus came walking by and spoke, follow me, and our lives were changed. You know, I was the son of a public prosecutor and a stay-at-home mum who was retraining as a psychologist. I went to church, but my mind and my heart were filled only with thoughts of me. And I was sitting in class going along with a joke, teasing a girl for being a Christian when she stood up for herself and her saviour and Christ spoke to me. Follow me. You may have grown up in a Christian home. It may look like you made a decision for the Lord. But nonetheless, in every Christian home and behind every decision for the Lord is the Lord Jesus who walked up to you and spoke. Follow me. John Calvin says this. He says, but this publican who followed an occupation little esteemed and involved in many abuses was selected for additional reasons that he might be an example of Christ's undeserved goodness and might show in his person that the calling of all of us depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his pure kindness. There's one thing that we learn about this man's calling, says John Calvin, is that he did not deserve it, but is that It is an expression of the kindness of our Lord. You know, the calling of this man, Levi, is a living example of every Christian story. Our calling is based not on our goodness or what we have achieved, but on the pure kindness of Jesus. And we will never know the reason he chose us in this life, except that is to display his goodness. And that's point number one, a sinner called. 
But not just point number one, a sinner called, but point number two, a life transformed. Read with me verse 28 of our passage. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You know, those two words, follow me, have a deep and immediate impact upon Levi. Luke writes, leaving everything, he followed Jesus. You see, Levi didn't just leave some things behind. He left it all. It means that Levi completely abandoned his career as a tax collector. He completely abandoned his former way of life, and he became a disciple of Jesus. You see, Levi repented. He changed his mind about God and the way he was living, and he followed Jesus. You see, the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible is that our forefather Adam, our ancestor, in rejecting God, brought a terrible spiritual plague into the world, a hidden disease that affects the heart of every person. A hidden disease that leaves every person obsessed with themselves and numb to the heart of God. And since God is the essence of goodness, to reject him is the essence of evil. And we all, therefore, stand guilty before God and rightly deserve to be punished. Completely oblivious to our dangerous plight, we sit in the toll booths of our sin. And the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to live the life that we failed to live on our behalf. He took the punishment that we deserve upon the cross He rose again in victory three days later, defeating death once and for all. And the punishment having been taken upon himself, he now has the ability to offer life and forgiveness to anyone who comes to him in faith. And yet here's our problem. As a culture, we completely misunderstand what faith means. See, our culture is secular, And it's individualistic. And as a result, faith is considered something private and personal. Faith to the average person is wishful thinking or perhaps even believing a bunch of ideas. And we therefore don't see any problem with having faith faith in Jesus and living life in any way we please. Yet faith in the Bible is relational. It's perhaps better translated as trust. You see, you can believe lots of things about Jesus, but do you trust him? Faith means trusting Jesus is who he says he is. The eternal son of God become man. Trusting that he shed his blood for you. And trusting that he is the king of glory and your master. You see, repentance and faith are actually just two sides of the same coin. Repentance in the Bible is a heartfelt sorrow for sin and a turning from it. And when you put your trust in Jesus, repentance is the most natural thing in the world. To trust Jesus is to be amazed at what he's done for you. His blood for you at the cross. To trust Jesus is to be want to be like him in every way, to follow in his footsteps, to live to please him. To trust Jesus is to be grieved by the ways in which you've failed and to want nothing to do with them at all. 
And this is exactly what we see in Levi. Jesus says, follow me. And trusting Jesus, he leaves everything behind and follows him. His old way of life could not continue. He literally just walks away. Now, don't think that this is about the determination of Levi, that he was just especially determined. No, this is about the power of the command of Jesus. It's proof that Levi has been changed by Jesus, which grows even more as we read what comes next. Read with me in verse 29. It says this, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Levi, at great personal expense, immediately begins preparing a great banquet in his own home. You know, just imagine this kind of lavish feast with all the trappings being arranged uh, with it. But notice it says, he made him a great feast. He made it for Jesus. It was an expression of his great devotion to him. It was an act of worship. His heart is on fire. Levi then proceeds to invite all his friends and associates to this banquet for Jesus. But who is Levi friends with or acquainted with? Who does he work with? Well, it turns out there are the tax collectors and others, which we later find out are sinners. You know, sinner in Jesus' day was a broad term for people living not in accordance with the Old Testament, who as a result were excluded from society. It could be, they could be excluded because of their choice of work. They could be a tax collector or a tanner who is touching dead animals all the time and therefore is considered unclean. It could be a prostitute or a pimp. But it also could be because of their behavior. Thieves, drunkards, adulterers. And you see Levi desiring for as many of his friends to meet Jesus as possible squeezes them all into his, into his home. And so there is Jesus and his disciples finding themselves reclining in Levi's home, surrounded by a who's who of local outcasts and misfits. But notice Levi's instinct. Having encountered the Lord Jesus, his immediate instinct is to draw as many people as he possibly can to him. After encountering the great physician, after finding spiritual healing, he joins him on mission. It's nothing complicated. He takes what he has and he uses it to celebrate Jesus and he invites as many people as he can in. Now here's a tough question that I've been thinking about for myself and for us this last week. Especially in the midst of COVID. Have we forgotten that we are surrounded by dying people? And have we forgotten that we know the great physician? You know, one of the natural fruits of a lockdown is not only to be physically stuck with in the confines of our home, but it's to find our gaze ever so gradually shifting from looking at Jesus and the plight of our neighbors without him to thinking about ourselves. 
You know, in our wider community, as I go out about my work as a physiotherapist, I'm increasingly hearing people vent their frustrations with this lockdown. When will it end? Keeps going on and on and on. How many times does the government have to stuff it up? And at home, we can find ourselves increasingly occupied with finding something to entertain ourselves with all the kids. So the question I've been asking myself is, even in the midst of lockdown, do I still have that same heart as Levi? To draw others to Christ? No wonder if the Lord is trying to reorient our gaze somewhat this morning, just to remember why we're here. That we've been transformed to follow Jesus and join with him in his mission. You know, if you're following Jesus, this is your story. You may not feel it when you're on your third load of washing with screaming kids or losing your mind from endless Zoom meetings, but this is your story. You are not the same person you once were or you would have been. You know, maybe just even wherever you're sitting, take a moment to think back to who you were before you met Christ and how he's changed your life. You see, Levi is an example of a life that has been completely transformed. And that's our second point. But finally, point number three, not just the life transformed, but a mission to heal. You see, it gets even better. Jesus didn't just call a sinner to become an apostle. He didn't just completely transform this man's life by his word. But he reveals that this is the very reason for which he has come. Read with me verse 30 of our passage. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, these religious experts catch wind of what Jesus has been doing, and they're outraged. More than that, they see an opportunity to turn his disciples against him. And so they approach his disciples and they say, why do you and this guy eat with, eat meals with tax collectors and sinful excluded people? You know, we probably don't think too much about meals in our culture. We think more functionally about them. You know, you eat and drink with bad company. Okay, what's the big deal? But to this day in the Middle East and in many other cultures, to eat and drink with someone means something far more significant. To be welcomed into someone's home, to eat and drink with someone, is to embrace them. It's to identify with them. And it's to accept them as a friend. And so these religious experts are really asking the disciples, how can you embrace these people? How can you allow yourself to be contaminated by these unclean sinners? Aren't you condoning their appalling behavior? And so we read on in verse 31 of our passage. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, No one goes looking for a physician when they feel fine. Only the sick do. And I have not come to call the righteous. You see, Jesus is being ironic here. 
We've been talking about the hidden spiritual disease that affects every person. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard, absolute perfection. Paul in Romans 3.10, as we read at the start, says, none is righteous. No, not even one. There is not a single person who is righteous. There is not a single person who is not guilty before God. Okay, well, what does Jesus mean then when he says this? Jesus is saying, I've not come to call those who believe themselves to be good people. I've not come to call the self-righteous. I've not come to call the self-made man, the self-made woman. I've not come to call those who believe that they can cut it before God, who believe that they'll be left off the hook or let off the hook based upon their achievements. Jesus is saying, do you think you're a good person? I haven't come for you. Just like someone who thinks they're healthy doesn't go looking for a heart surgeon, you won't think you need me, says Jesus. But I have come, he says. Let's let's not skip too quickly over this. Jesus is revealing the very core of his mission on earth. This is the reason for his incarnation. This is the very reason for his coming as a man. I have come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus gives us two glorious aspects about his mission here, the reason he has come. The first is he's come to call sinners. Sinners like Levi, sinners like his tax collecting buddies, his sinner mates. You know, are you listening at home to this and deeply aware of some personal failure? Maybe you cheated on your spouse. Maybe you've committed fraud. Maybe you had an unplanned pregnancy that led you to an abortion. Maybe you're hiding secret content on your computer. Maybe you're dipping into the till at work. Maybe you have a chronic but hidden addiction. Maybe your faith is just hanging on by a friend. Maybe you're plagued by doubts. Maybe you're struggling to commit. Or you're just the type of person he's come for. You know, Christian Erickson didn't go looking for a cardiologist before his heart stopped. He didn't even know he needed one. And if you know you're broken, if you know you're spiritually ill, Jesus is wonderful news because he's come on a mission here for you. A mission to heal. You know, the key question when it comes to following Jesus is not, am I good enough? But do I know I'm bad enough? You know, in our neighborhood, in our culture, the biggest problem is that we believe that most people, including ourselves, are essentially good. We look at those around us and we think, well, no one's perfect, but I'm probably above average. The problem with this is that we're looking in the wrong direction. If Jesus is right in saying, no one is good but God alone, looking around us is not the right place to assess our goodness. The place to look is up. The real question is, how do I compare to the holy God of all? Have I loved my maker with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength? Have I loved my neighbor as myself? See, to look up at the holy God of all is to see we're spiritually ill and in need of the wonderful healing of the great physician and that which he's come to provide. But he doesn't just tell us that he's come to call sinners. There's a second piece of his calling as well, his purpose, his mission here on earth. And that is that he's come to call sinners to repentance. 
You see, it's such a beautiful scene to imagine Jesus reclining and enjoying this wonderful banquet with all these dodgy characters all around him. But there can be this idea that Jesus' friend of sinners means that Jesus simply embraced these people. You know, Jesus has hugs and, and cuddles and he never requires anyone to change. Jesus just loved people. He never judged. He just welcomed. He's the friend of sinners. But if Jesus was an ordinary man, if Jesus was a great moral teacher or maybe just a charismatic leader, that might be possible. But because Jesus is the eternal son of God, that is impossible. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one for whom we were made. To be close to him is to be compelled to live for the one you were designed to live for. You know, you can try and take a Rolex and use it like a hammer. Or you can try and take a MacBook Pro and use it like a cutting board. Or you can buy a beautiful four-stroke mower and try to use it to trim your beard. But I'll tell you what, with every one of those examples, you're going to find a disaster. Because that is not what they were made for. In the same way, we were made to live for, to love, to serve, and to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, to encounter him is to begin to be realigned to him and his will. And that is the Lord Jesus' mission to heal. He's come to call sinners to himself where they can repent, where they can reorient their lives to be lived for the one for whom they were made. And like a fish released into a stream or an eagle released from a cage, to find freedom. Well, as we close, I just wanted to end with a concluding reflection about the right application for this passage. Now, as we've seen this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, Levi is a picture of your story. Well, how then do we apply it? Well, quite simply, just like this. By like Levi, joyfully, using what we have to help others encounter Jesus. You know, I love the simplicity of what Levi does here. Jesus is with him. Jesus has opened his eyes and called him. And so he prepares this huge feast and invites everyone he knows. And so the question I want to leave us with this morning is, how can we use what we have even during lockdown, to help others meet the great physician. Now take what has been entrusted to me and to use it just to celebrate Jesus. To perhaps courageously invite my colleagues or neighbors or friends or family members to meet Christ. To use this time to pray and to ask God for an opportunity to share Christ. To perhaps drop a meal or a gift card on a neighbor's door and to pray that they would come to receive Christ. Well, as we close, I just want to end with this story. It comes from uh, the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield and how she gave her life to Christ. And she describes this in The Gospel Comes with a House Key, uh, her book. She says, Going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be-tenured radical, 
My heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian, totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. Our worldviews and the moral lens we used to make a sense of things were incommensurable, unbridgeable. But there I was, in their driveway, parking my red Isuzu Amigo truck, decorated with my narrow National Abortion Rights Action League bumper sticker and lesbian labrys decals. I sat there in my truck, readying myself to knock on the front door. See, Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian activist and, and intellectual when a couple in their 70s invited her into their home, loved her, and began pointing her to Jesus. See, just like Levi, they joined Jesus on his mission to heal and invited Rosaria in, sharing what they had, introducing her to Christ, and she was transformed. Would you join with me in praying? Look, God, we want to thank you this morning so much for the opportunity to pause and reflect upon our story. To think that we were lost without a hope in the world, sitting in our toll booths, watching people go by and only thinking of how we can get more for ourselves. When suddenly you stopped, stared at us, called us by name, follow me. And in that moment, we were transformed. But God, this morning, wherever we may be, at home, in lockdown, with family or friends or alone, we thank you that you're present, speaking to us, wanting to change us. Lord God, shift our gaze this morning from ourselves to Christ. Help us see that we now live for him. We have a new purpose. It's to join him on his mission to heal. To take what we have and to use it to bring people to him. But God, I pray that you would, even in this moment, shift our gaze to you and our neighbors. Help us to think of creative ways in which we can love them and serve them and point them to you. And would the fruit of it be many more Levi's, many more banquets, and many more people singing your praises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.